the year 1624, the place Angola. Queen Nzinga has taken the throne of the Central African Kingdom of Ndongo, and the Portuguese invaders are about to experience her wrath. Love her, hate her, you will learn to respect her. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hey y'all, and welcome back to Unknown Soldiers. This is episode 9, The Wrath of Najinga. I am your host, James Hauser, and I hope you're having a good Columbus Day slash Indigenous Peoples Day. I prefer Indigenous Peoples Day. Columbus wasn't actually a very good guy. Moving on. It's pretty appropriate that I spend today talking about one of European colonization's fiercest opponents, an incredible ruler and woman named Najinga of Ndongo, and I am thrilled to tell you guys all about her. Couple things I need to say, but with some caveats. First, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on, especially today. The podcast is PG-13, the language is clean, the content is not, 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 not clean today. This week, like last week, has a trigger warning, this time for racism, slavery, and some pretty messed up violence that you don't usually see outside of a horror film, so please take note. Next, all my sources will be posted on my website, so if you want to know where I got my information, that's where you can find it. Finally, all errors, mispronunciations, mistakes, they're all me. There are going to be a lot of mispronunciations today in particular because I am totally unfamiliar with Mabundu or Bantu languages, but I will do my best. All the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's get into it. Our story today begins with a statue. Statues are a subject of debate lately, aren't they? I'm recording this days after the statue of Robert E. Lee was taken down in Richmond. All over the world, but especially in America, people have been dealing with the subject of statues over the last couple of years. Should the statue go up? Should the statue come down? Should it stay? Does this or that person deserve to be honored? Are statues for remembering history or for something else? This particular statue I'm talking about today was erected in 2002 in the Angolan capital city of Luanda. Its subject is an African woman gazing at the horizon, dressed in traditional garb and wielding a battle axe. Her face is determined, defiant, unflinching. She is Najinga of Ndongo, a woman that Angola celebrates as a hero, a symbol of resistance to European conquest and colonization. In the modern day, she is regarded as the mother of Angola, their unifying patriotic figure, a political symbol for many different movements and parties and factions. Najinga's statue has been moved around since it was initially erected, but maintains its pride of place in Luanda. She is their national icon, the warrior queen of Angola, the inspiring legendary story that in some versions, some very sanitized versions, could easily be like a 90s Disney movie, like a Mulan-style girl power movie. But to other historians, to many historians throughout the ages, Najinga represents something different. Najinga was an amazing and compelling woman, one of history's great figures, 
But like so many of these people, she was willing to do anything and everything to maintain and expand her power. There is a darker side to Najinga's story, a side that is less Disney princess and more Game of Thrones villain. This includes acts that are, in some cases, so downright horrible that I'm squeamish talking about them in this episode. When you hear some of these things, you're going to ask yourself, is this the protagonist? Is this the hero of the story? Well, that's the problem, ain't it? We think in terms of heroes and villains. We want to hear simple stories about good people defeating bad people. But it's not always simple. I will say this, and this is one of my guiding principles in general when I study history. Great people are almost always bad people. Najinga was a powerful woman. She was a magnificent leader. She stood up to the invaders of her country. Well, yes, but she also committed acts in this story that would be hard to justify for any reason, even the best ones. But there is a giant statue of her in Angola to this day. And maybe it's important to ask ourselves, does this person deserve a statue? How do we determine who does, whether someone's a hero or a villain, or even both at the same time? And what are statues for, anyway? Let's find out. Today we will be talking about Queen Najinga of Ndongo, the warrior queen of Angola. We're going to discover the world of Central Africa both before and after the Europeans arrived, and meet the Portuguese Empire as they stab and shoot their way around the world. We'll see how Najinga was born and raised, how she seized power, and how she led an increasing coalition of African peoples against the Portuguese. We will see her do some stuff that may need to make you pause and take a breath. And we will see her off to the ancestors. And at the end, we'll figure out if she should have a statue, because we'll explain why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And as always, it's an epic, so we have breaks. When I lead into the musical break, that is your cue to take a shower, hydrate, do some jumping jacks, do whatever you need to do. All right, guys, sharpen your battle axes, keep your gunpowder dry, and if I were you, I'd put on some bug spray. Because we're going on campaign. Where are we going, you ask? Well, we'll be spending the vast majority of today's episode in the north of what is now Angola, near its capital and main port city of Luanda. Show of hands, who knows a lot about West Central Africa? Okay, no, nobody? Alright, well don't feel bad. I didn't know much either before I did my research for this episode. It's a sad fact that most people, and that includes me, don't actually know as much as they should about Africa, just what they've caught in bits and pieces from movies, TV shows, books, the news. If you close your eyes now and imagine Africa, what do you see? African stereotypes are straight up jungle, desert, or savanna, but northern Angola doesn't really fit those stereotypes. The climate is tropical, but the terrain is mostly open savanna, broken up by dense forests, rivers, and small mountains. Many of the more famous African animals, like lions and giraffes, were native to Angola. It doesn't really mirror any part of America that I can think of. 
Before the Europeans arrived, West Central Africa was home to a crazy diversity of peoples and cultures and societies, mostly living in large centralized states, not tribes. They aren't hanging out in the jungle and wicker huts. These are states. These are kingdoms. The biggest kingdom, Congo, was probably about the size of North Carolina. Its capital city of Mabanza, Congo, may have been the largest city in Sub-Saharan Africa around this period, which is a pretty big deal when huge cities like Kilwa or Timbuktu are massive at this point. Congo dominated the smaller states around it, and the largest of these smaller states was the Kingdom of Ndongo, which occupied a stretch of land along the Kwanzaa River, deep in the African highlands, a few dozen miles from the Atlantic coast. The ruler of Ndongo, the king, I guess you could say, was called the Ngola, and Europeans would often just refer to Ndongo as the Kingdom of the Ngola, which gives us the modern name of the country, Angola. They ruled from an urban center of about 50,000 people called the Kabasa, or the capital. Ndongo had a complex social structure, with the Ngola wielding authority through a class of trained bureaucrats and tax collectors. They exercised indirect control over their country through a class of local nobles called the Sobas. The monarch of Ndongo was also the head of the state religion, and something of a divine figure in their own right. According to one Portuguese observer, the Ngola holds and says openly that he is the lord of the sun and the rain, and he orders it to rain, or not to rain, as it seems fit to him. The Mabundu people, who made up the majority of Ndongo's population, believed in the absolute reality of spiritual forces, that offerings to the shrines of local deities or the ancestors, including occasionally human sacrifice, had a very real effect on the world. I keep harping on this for many societies we talk about, such as everybody involved in the Siege of Malta. These people absolutely believed in divine intervention on God's power on earth, or the God's power on earth, in a way that our 21st century minds don't always understand. There is one central aspect of Najinga's world that we need to end with before we move on to the events that occurred, and that is slavery. Most pre-modern societies, not all, but most, had some form of slavery as part of their social structures, and Sub-Saharan Africa was no different. Congo and Ndongo had complex systems of slavery, but not all slaveries are made equal. This system was different in some very important ways from, like, slavery in the 19th century American South. There were different classes of slaves. Some slaves were more like medieval serfs, born and bound to a certain piece of land or a certain title, and they could not be legally given away or sold. They were not exactly property. Other class of slaves were those captured in war, bought or sold into slavery as punishment for a crime. These people could be bought and sold at will, and these made up the core of the slave trade. Both Congo and Ndongo had strict governmental regulations on the slave trade, including laws to make sure free people or serfs weren't sold by accident or by deception. These were laws, I will point out, that the 19th century America did not have, which is how you get someone who's a free black person sold into the South in, say, 12 years a slave. These regulations and limits placed controls on an institution of slavery that was more cultural than economic. But all these things were about to change. 
When we tell the story of European conquest, colonization, imperialism, the focus is usually on the Spanish or the British. Maybe the French. But Portugal was the one that started them all. The founders of the Age of Discovery. The OG European colonizers. It was the Portuguese who came into contact with the kingdoms of Western Africa in the 1480s and 1490s. Think back to your history classes from elementary, middle, high school for a second. What was Columbus trying to find when he sailed west across the Atlantic? The same thing the Portuguese were trying to find, a sea route to India. Columbus was completely wrong about the way to get it to India, and the Portuguese were right. It was while sailing down the coast of Africa, looking for a way to India, that the Portuguese first made contact with the Kingdom of Congo. And surprisingly, nothing terrible happened. Portuguese contact with Congo was one of the very few times that European exploration didn't immediately go into violence and looting and colonization. Because the Portuguese weren't looking for the Africans, they were looking for India. In fact, the King of Congo was not only welcoming to the Portuguese, they motivated him to transform his entire country. It was one of history's most remarkable cultural revolutions. Afonso I of Congo, who reigned from 1509 to 1542, converted to Catholicism and imported all kinds of European technology and learning. He transformed the Congolese capital of Mabanza, Congo into a Christian city with a cathedral and Christian seminary and renamed it Sao Salvador. He sent his own son to be taught theology in Portugal, and this son became the first Bishop of Congo. Within a few decades, Congo had become a Catholic kingdom in the heart of Africa. This was one of the rare times in this era, in any era, that this kind of thing happened without any European invasion. The King of Congo made a conscious decision to adopt Catholic Christianity, but on his own terms. Afonso blended new Christian ideas with Congolese tradition to create something original. It was foreshadowing for how Nzinga would rule Ndongo a hundred years later. But by around 1515, Portugal had built a global trade and naval empire. When we talk about the innocent-sounding Age of Exploration, we have to remember that it went hand-in-hand hand with extreme violence. The Portuguese dominated the Indian Ocean sea trade, held trading posts and fortresses across Africa and Asia, and shot, stabbed, and murdered just about anyone who got in their way. The Portuguese also controlled European trade with Africa, and the resources that Europe wanted from Africa were mainly, uh, human resources, in the worst sense. See, Portugal had also built an American empire in Brazil, where the sugar trade was generating enormous amounts of wealth. Sugar was super valuable in the 1500s, and it could only be produced in tropical climates like Brazil, the Caribbean, or Africa. But sugar was also extremely manpower intensive. It was brutal, and the conditions in tropical Brazil were terrible, and people got used up, worked to death, at an alarming rate. So the Portuguese needed vast amounts of cheap, expendable manpower. The solution to this problem was one of the great human disasters of history, the Atlantic slave trade. Starting in 1526, with the first shipment of African slaves to Brazil, the Portuguese controlled the slave trade for about the next century and a half. Conditions during their crossing and on the plantations were abominable, inhuman. If slavery in the 13 colonies and later America was bad, and it was, 
Brazil and the West Indies were even worse. Many, many Africans found their deaths in the sugar fields of Brazil or the coffee plantations of Cuba. They were used like human fuel to power the engines of the European plantations. Now, as we've seen, slavery was nothing new to Africa, but the Portuguese demand for human fuel created a new economic reality that overturned traditional versions of slavery. Now there were thousands of Africans vanishing across the Atlantic every year, never to be seen again. The more people that the Portuguese bought, the more they needed. And since the main source of slaves in Central Africa were captives taken in war, the Portuguese began to use war as an instrument of their policy. Before the Europeans, the slave trade had been a byproduct of war. After the Europeans arrived, war became a byproduct of the slave trade. The need for human fuel would drive Portugal to conflict with Nadongo. In 1576, the Portuguese established an outpost at Luanda on Angola's African coast at the mouth of the Kwanzaa River. This city was the new center of Portuguese power in Central Africa, and it was the capital of the Atlantic slave trade for the next three centuries. Luanda signaled a change in Portugal's Africa policy. They decided that war and conquest would be a much more profitable way of netting thousands of captives for the slave market. See, Congo's and Ndongo's strictly regulated slave trade was just not producing the human fuel that the sugar plantations needed. It wasn't putting out enough people. Since the King of Congo was a Portuguese ally, Portugal decided that the weaker kingdom of Ndongo would be their first target. They declared war in 1578, beginning a series of conflicts that would last for the next eight decades. The Portuguese war on Ndongo was brutal, near catastrophic. The Portuguese and their local African allies were ruthless and violent, burning villages, taking thousands of captives. When it came to Central African rules of slave-taking, with certain people who could and could not be enslaved, the Portuguese could not have given less of a crap. The war existed for two purposes, to expand the new Portuguese colony and to absorb human fuel for the sugar plantations. Nothing else mattered. Now, not everything went well for the Portuguese. Nadongo resistance was fierce and skillful. They even defeated the large Portuguese army at Lucala in 1590. The war went back and forth. But even if the Portuguese suffered serious setbacks, they could never be defeated completely. Their stone and earth fortresses provided bases and fallback positions that the Nadongo, who had no artillery, could never crack and human fuel was flowing out from Angola like never before. From 1575 onward, the vast majority of enslaved people in the Atlantic world had their origins in northern Angola, taken from the kingdoms of Congo, Ndongo, and their neighbors in the brutal war for slavery. The Portuguese thirst for slave labor was insatiable. The more slaves that were captured, the more the demand increased. Tens of thousands of people were packed into ships and sent across the Atlantic to be worked to death on the sugar plantations. One of these captives was a woman called Angela. Angela was captured in the Great War and taken to Luanda, where she and 350 other captives were packed aboard a Portuguese ship, the São Joao Batista. Their destination was Mexico, but they never got there. 
Other European powers were trying to crack the Portuguese monopoly on the slave trade, and they used piracy to do it. The São João Batista was captured by the English privateer John Cope, who then sailed north and sold Angela and 20 other slaves to the new English colony of Virginia. The year was 1619. These were the first enslaved Africans to arrive in the 13 colonies, and until 1660, almost all Africans brought to America would be Angolan captives taken from Portuguese slave ships. The war in Angola, which seems so distant, so irrelevant almost today, had long repercussions for American history as well as African history. The birth of American slavery in 1619 had its roots in a war for slaves launched in a distant African kingdom. It was during this war that the star of our show, Najinga, would be born and raised. Her life would be dominated by the conflict with the Portuguese, and she would ultimately be the one to end it. Let's meet our girl. Najinga was born into the royal family of Ndongo, probably around 1583. She was the daughter of the ruler, Ngola Kilombo Kiakasenda, and his favorite concubine, Kingela Kanakombe. According to Mabundu tradition, Najinga was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around her neck, which was considered to be an omen of great divine and spiritual power. There is an Angolan folk song written about Najinga's birth as the coming of a divine savior, which, considering they were currently being overrun by the Portuguese, makes a little bit of sense that they would be looking for a divine savior. This birth even gave Najinga her name, which is a conjugation of the verb kujinga, meaning twisted or turned. Najinga was brought up in the royal court at Kabasa, alongside her sisters Kambu and Fungi, and her brother Mabandi, who was slated to become the king when their father died. Of these children, Najinga was clearly the most talented. She was physically impressive, strong, athletic, an expert hand-to-hand -hand fighter with the traditional Mabundu weapon, the battle axe. She was her father's favorite child, even more favored than his chosen heir, and she accompanied him in war councils, religious rituals, and judicial proceedings, eager to learn how to govern and lead. But she grew up under the shadow of war. By the age of 19 or 20, Najinga was actively participating in and then leading combat against the Portuguese and their African allies. She quickly gained a wealth of military experience and was soon an inspirational figure to the Mabundu people, their warrior princess, right? Heck yeah, girl power! So Najinga would have been a perfect choice as the next monarch of Ndongo, and she probably should have been, but that was not meant to be. In 1617, when Najinga was about 34, her father died in a Portuguese ambush. Her brother Mabandi seized the title of Nagola and immediately went on a killing spree, executing anyone who might pose a threat to his rule, including much of his father's family. Even Mabandi's own sisters were not safe from his murderous paranoia. He had always been jealous of Najinga and the love that their father had shown her. Now he had his revenge. First, he had Najinga's newborn son executed, a horrible and traumatizing event that scarred her for life. Then he had his sisters Najinga, Kambu, and Fungi sterilized by some sort of terrible method involving scalding oil. Not entirely sure how that worked, but none of his sisters would ever bear children again. A heartbroken and wrathful Najinga fled into exile, vowing revenge. 
But Mabandi was completely unfit to lead his people in war, and he made this clear from the word go. The Portuguese Nadongo War continued, and now the Europeans had a new ally. A series of nomadic warrior bands known as the Imbangala began to appear in the south and east of Nadongo. These were highly disciplined gangs of fearsome marauders who struck terror into the hearts of the settled Mabundu peoples. By now, the Portuguese governors had a simple formula for their wars with the Nadongo, and that was to create chaos. It didn't really matter if they won or lost battles or captured areas. The more chaos they created, the more refugees came about, and thus, more human fuel. Chaos was the point, and the Imbangala were chaos personified. When these allies attacked in 1617, the kingdom of Nadongo began to collapse. Mabandi was a poor leader. He did not have the loyalty of his people. Morale sagged, the capital was sacked, his armies were defeated and demoralized by the combination of Portuguese technology and Imbangala brutality. It must have seemed like the end of the world for the Mabundu people. War and the mass kidnapping went hand in hand with economic devastation, famine, disease, and exposure. Chaos and destruction engulfed Central Africa as the slave trade war machine ramped up. The war rippled out past Ndongo into neighboring regions as the Imbangala devastated massive sections of the landscape with Portuguese assistance and weapons. With Ndongo on the brink of collapse, Ngola Mabandi turned to the last person he should have expected to help. He sent a message to his sister, Najinga, asking if she could go represent the kingdom of Ndongo in Luanda and gain peace for their people. Hey sis, I know I just murdered your kid and did unspeakable things to you, but are you willing to do me a solid? Now most people would tell him to get bent, but Najinga saw an opportunity. She was far more popular with the people than her brother, and this was a chance to assert her authority and undermine his. Mabandi's leadership had been a disaster, and if she was going to supplant him, she would need all the leverage she could get. Najinga was a woman who would do anything, anything to win, no matter how much it hurt. So she accepted Mabandi's offer. She would go to Luanda on a diplomatic mission, in the hope of stopping the Portuguese slave-taking blitzkrieg against her people. In 1621, after being showered with praise and gifts by her brother, who she had not forgiven, obviously, Najinga went with a military escort and a large train of servants and slaves to impress the Portuguese with the might of the African kingdom. She arrived in Luanda in splendor, she refused to dress in Portuguese fashion, so she was adorned with precious jewels, folds of soft cloth, and colorful feathers in her hair. Njinga's arrival in Luanda was a public event, and possibly one of the most famous moments of her life. Many Mabundu people, both slaves and free, remembered her grand entrance to the city for years afterwards. She came with a show of force and prestige, meant to all the Portuguese with her kingdom's might, and demonstrate that she was worthy of respect. Now the game began. The story goes like this. The first time that Najinga appeared before the Portuguese governor, João Correa de Sousa, the situation had been arranged to his benefit. All the Portuguese dignitaries were seated in high-backed chairs, but in front of the governor, there was no chair, only a single rug. 
This was where Najinga was expected to sit. This sort of diplomatic psychological move is common in forceful diplomacy. In this case, it was a carefully calculated move by the Portuguese to put Najinga in a position of submission and subordination. That's how it's going to be, huh? But Najinga responded. She waved her hand almost casually, and one of her female servants immediately dropped to her hands and knees in front of her and took position as a human chair. Najinga sat on her attendant, eye to eye with the Portuguese governor, and began negotiations. This show of power and control was her counter-proposal to the Portuguese insult. Yeah, this was how it was going to be. Heck yeah, girl power, right? Najinga was an expert diplomat and impressed everyone who met her. She used a combination of flattery, confidence, and stubbornness to get a peace treaty for her kingdom. The Portuguese would be allowed to resume their peaceful slave trade in the Dongo, but in return they would withdraw from the kingdom's territories. She described her brother's actions as the mistakes of a naive, foolish young king, but she also flatly refused to pay tribute or acknowledge the Portuguese as their overlords. She did give in on one important front, though. Najinga agreed to be baptized as a Christian and promised that her brother would do so as well. Najinga was baptized with her hostess Ana da Silva serving as her godmother. Najinga took the Christian name Ana in her honor, and Portuguese sources thereafter refer to her as Ana Najinga or just Ana de Souza. But either way, Najinga left Luanda in triumph in late 1622. She had gotten the best deal that Nadongo could get out of the peace settlement and fortified her own position in the meantime. This big meeting, this noble and visible defiance of the Portuguese conquerors of her homeland, is the most well-remembered part of Najinga's legacy, the reason her statue stands in Luanda today. Her pride in Mabundu traditions, defiance of the governor, and harsh negotiation had gained her the admiration and esteem of many of her people, and her strategic conversion to Christianity would prove useful in the future. But most importantly, she had placed her baby-killing brother firmly in her shadow. You go, girl power. All that remained was to finish the job. Najinga had a long life and career ahead of her. Over the next 40 years, she would embody African resistance to European rule. And this all started with her trip to Luanda, where her statue stands today, to confront the Portuguese. Najinga's legend had begun. So real quick, what is going on in 1621, the year that Najinga went to Luanda to negotiate a peace treaty with the Portuguese? What's up in the rest of the world? When is this? Well, this is the early modern era, when Europe is still wrapped up in the wars of religion. In America, this is the year that the pilgrims celebrate the first Thanksgiving at Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts, two years after the first enslaved people arrived in Virginia in 1619. In Europe, the Thirty Years' War has just begun, and some of its consequences will spill over into our story today. 
Sir Francis Bacon, the father of the scientific method, is active in London, and Galileo Galilei is active in Italy. And none of them probably knew or cared about Nijinga, and she probably didn't know or care about them. Plus, she had bigger things to worry about. When Nijinga returned from Luanda, she was primed to defeat and overthrow her hated brother, the man who had killed her son and sterilized her and her sisters. Without so much as a how do you do, Nijinga rolled up to Mbandi's palace and publicly chewed him out for his incompetence and stupidity. And over the next few months, she basically just shoved him aside and took over the government. It wasn't that hard. Everyone just respected her more. Nijinga had promised the Portuguese that Mbandi would accept Christianity and be baptized. But when she got back to the capital, she told him, nah, don't do that. But this compromised his integrity with the Portuguese and made her look like the stronger, more active ruler. When the Portuguese refused to comply with the treaty she had made, continuing to hold posts and conduct slave raids into Nadongo territory, Mabandi failed to resist them and again looked weak next to his sister. He fell into a deep depression and Najinga made her plans. Heck yeah, girl power. In 1624, Nagola Mabandi died of causes that are still mysterious. Some say suicide over his miserable situation and Najinga's domineering presence. Some say Najinga had him poisoned. Either way, it sounds like Sis had her revenge. But before his death, he had declared Najinga his heir. Well, considering that she was already running the show at that point, this wasn't much of a surprise. She had herself declared Nagola Najinga, the new ruler of Nadongo. After paying homage to the traditional gods of the Mabundu and taking part in the coronation ceremonies, Najinga began to organize the defenses of her kingdom against the Portuguese. The key point would be the Kindonga Islands, an ancient spot of great spiritual power and authority farther up the Kwanzaa River. She knew that the rematch with the Portuguese was coming and they needed to get ready. But there was one last loose end to tie up. And this is where the edifying girl power Disney movie spirit of this story begins to run a bit dry. Najinga's brother had a living son, her seven-year-old nephew, who was currently in the keeping of the Mbangala chief Kasa. This kid posed a threat to her power. After Kasa refused to hand the child over, Najinga allegedly seduced him, convinced the younger chief that she was in love with him, and persuaded him to marry her. The ceremony was not even over before Najinga grabbed her nephew, stabbed him to death, and threw his body in the river, shouting that she had finally revenged her son. Uh, girl power? Say what you will about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but that is what it looks like when taken to its logical conclusion. A brilliant, confident, ruthless woman like Najinga was prepared to do anything to accomplish her goals. And up until this point, we could say that was admirable. But it's the very same qualities that made her great that also had the potential to make her terrible, cruel. If it's true that every virtue has a dark flip side, then Najinga's will and determination to do anything to preserve her kingdom and defeat the Portuguese, that meant anything. So I ask you again, does this woman deserve a statue? Can someone be both great and terrible? Or are they very close to the same thing? 
The Portuguese took Najinga's murder of her nephew as a pretext for war, but honestly this was just an excuse. When it came to supplying the needs of Brazil and the new Portuguese plantations in Angola, the peaceful slave trade wasn't enough. The wars with Nadongo had produced far more human fuel. Even worse, many people escaped slavery or ran away before they could be captured and sought refuge in Najinga's territory. Najinga refused to return these refugees and escapees, claiming that no such people were within her kingdom. How could you say that? Heck yeah, girl power. Unironically this time. There was also the fact that Najinga's charisma and popularity had started to threaten the Portuguese position. Many of the vassal sobas that they had conquered began to switch their allegiance back to Najinga, and her popularity with the common people was stronger than ever. For the first time, the Portuguese were facing not just a hostile monarch, but a large-scale popular uprising. The only way to turn the tide would be to unravel Najinga's authority. So the Portuguese didn't just want to cause more chaos this time. Now they planned to set up a puppet king in Nadongo. He would be forced to provide Portugal with all the human fuel they desired. The Portuguese believed they could do this because unlike some other kingdoms in the area, Nadongo did not really have a tradition of female rule. This had undermined her with some of the local sobas as well as the Portuguese themselves. In the words of the Portuguese governor, Fernal de Souza, she did not have the power to be successor because a woman cannot govern this kingdom. On March 15, 1626, less than three years after Najinga left Luanda peace treaty in hand, the Portuguese declared war once again. Their army was led by experienced soldier Bento Banja Cardoso and consisted of a large number of local archers and militia stiffened by a small unit of Portuguese. They attacked the rebel Sobas and either captured them or forced them to submit. Cardoso's men moved up the Kwanzaa River, re-establishing Portuguese authority, and began to fight their way to Najinga's base at the Kindanga Islands. The Portuguese began their assault on this stronghold in May 1626. Najinga had spent months turning the Kindanga Islands into a fortress. She massed soldiers, surrounded the islands with trenches, and even dug bunkers beneath the earth. She stocked the islands with food, ammunition, and supplies to prepare for a siege. Her troops were well armed, not just with traditional weapons, but hundreds of muskets stolen from the Portuguese. She even had an early warning system of lookouts and towers prepared to resist the invaders. It wasn't enough. Cardoso's onslaught was overwhelming. The heavily armored Portuguese soldiers smashed through the trenches as their native auxiliaries rained fire on Najinga's soldiers. Guns blazed and warriors screamed in the heat of the African summer, and the smoke darkened the sky over the savannah. The Battle of the Kindanga Islands dragged on day after day, and the Portuguese slogged forward through the tropical heat. Najinga directed the battle from her headquarters, battle axe in hand, retreating from one island to the next as circumstances required. But it was a hopeless fight. Her army was cut to pieces by the firepower and discipline of the Portuguese. The Mabundu soldiers just couldn't stand up to the shock of artillery and volleyed musket fire. On July 12th, Najinga made her escape, rowing away under the cover of night with many of her best soldiers. It had been a well-planned, well-fought battle. Najinga had done everything right, 
but she had still lost. It was useless to try a stand-up fight against the overwhelming firepower of the Portuguese. But despite the setbacks, Najinga was not prepared to admit defeat. She had her priests conduct a seance with the ghost of her brother, who, according to her court, told her that it was her duty to fight on. Whether this was stage-managed or not, and I'm not sure why Najinga would really be interested in hearing from her brother's ghost anyway since he was a creep and a loser, such a statement from beyond the grave functioned as a religious confirmation of Najinga's spiritual power over her people. The religious power of the Nadongo throne was undented, and now Najinga had the blessings of her predecessors. After sacrificing 14 young women to the spirit of her brother, girl power, Najinga vowed to continue the fight. For the next several years, Najinga fought a guerrilla war against the Portuguese and their puppet government. She was constantly on the move, striking back at the Portuguese puppet rulers, as well as the noble Sobas who had bent the knee to the invaders. She could no longer face the Portuguese in the open on the savannas, or in fortresses like the Kendanga Islands, but made her camp in the forests and struck from the shadows. One Portuguese writer noted these Nadongo tactics. The Africans are never on the winning hand in the plain field, but when they take shelter in their strongholds, which are dense forests and times that they have leaves, they make fire without being seen, and they damage our men greatly. The Portuguese puppet king, Nagola Hari, was weak and incompetent. I think I've said this before, I think by the Graveyard of Empires Afghanistan episode, the problem with being a puppet ruler is that everyone knows you're a puppet ruler and no one respects you, least of all, the puppet masters. The Portuguese treated Nagola Hari like a servant, basically commanding him to do their bidding in his own country. Hari resented these insults, but he was also hide beneath your covers terrified of Najinga as any sane person was. Najinga liked to mess with him by sending him challenges to single combat and fetishes that contained dark magic, which had him screaming for the Portuguese to save him from that evil woman, which as you can imagine did not give anyone any confidence in him. Najinga's guerrilla war targeted the slave trade, both by attacking Portuguese slave traders and by liberating people from captivity. And soon the flow of human fuel from Angola began to run dry. This raised alarm bells back in Luanda. Even if she didn't hold any cities or control any vital regions, her continued influence was tightening the supply of the only thing the Portuguese really cared about. They were engaged in a propaganda war against each other. Their line was that she was a woman and therefore couldn't rule. Her line was that they were foreign occupiers with a puppet king, and her propaganda was just much more convincing. She had become the center of resistance to Portuguese rule and the illegal slave trade. If they wanted to gain the upper hand, she had to go. The Portuguese began to send heavily armed expeditions to hunt down the fugitive queen. They burned paths of destruction through the savannas and forests, destroying villages and killing or enslaving thousands. But Najinga relied on the belief of her people, her decades of experience and guile, and her ruthless determination to stay one step ahead of them at every turn. On May 25, 1629, Najinga's camp was surprised by a force of a hundred Portuguese musketeers and a much larger army of their Mabundu followers. 
The queen and her loyal bodyguards fled, and the Portuguese pursued, across mountain and ravine and river, a harrowing chase of three miles. Two days later, the invaders had Najinga and her small force cornered on the edge of a cliff. As her faithful fighters formed a wall around their sovereign, the Portuguese watched in amazement. As this queen, in her late 40s, grabbed a vine from the top of the cliff and rappelled down the precipice, dodging arrows and bullets the whole way. She made her escape with 200 soldiers without suffering a single injury. But as Najinga made her escape, the Portuguese captured her camp. The defenders had fought to the end, but they were overwhelmed. Most of her court was captured, including many of her loyal sobas. Most devastating to Najinga was the loss of her two sisters, Kambu and Funji, the only close relatives she had left in the world. By the end of 1629, Najinga was losing the war. She had been expelled from her kingdom and had less than 200 men left. Her sisters were paraded naked through the streets of Luanda. Her loyal companions were thrown in the slave ships and sent to Brazil. Despite her valiant resistance, her unshaken popular support, her military brilliance, and her determination, the Portuguese were winning. They seemed to be unstoppable. But they were about to learn that Najinga was most dangerous when she had her back to the wall. She would do anything to win. Anything. And that meant making a deal with the devil. The devils in this case were the Mbangala. These guys, if you'll remember, were the warrior bands that had allied with the Portuguese during earlier wars. They had come out of nowhere to become the terror of Central Africa. The Mbangala were nomadic armies that lived in fortified camps and lived a strict military lifestyle. They had alien traditions, terrifying to the Mabundu people of Congo and Ndongo, that revolved around witchcraft, cannibalism, and apocalyptically brutal warfare. They moved across the land like a roadshow of destruction, burning anything in their path, capturing the children of the areas they conquered and initiating them through brutal rituals into the army. So the Mbangala weren't just cannibalistic nomadic invaders, many of their recruits were child soldiers. I mean, guys, I've heard of few organizations or warrior cultures worse than the Mbangala. Not many. They were ruthless, dangerous, bloodthirsty. They seem to have been a shade worse than the Taliban. The Taliban might kill you, but they ain't gonna eat you afterwards. They're not gonna force mothers to kill their newborn babies because they don't allow children in their camp. They remind me of the road gangs from Mad Max, if nothing else, just a pre-modern version. These were the people Najinga turned to as a last resort to defeat the Portuguese. Najinga decided to approach, I'm pronouncing this wrong, almost certainly, Kasanje, who led one of the most powerful Mbangala armies. Now, Kasanje had been one of the people cutting a bloody path across Ndongo about 10 years ago, before settling down to the east of Najinga's borders. But she was out of options, and Kasanje saw that she was desperate. Sure, he said, I'll help you, I'll give you shelter, bring your court, bring all your followers, but you must agree to become my wife, and you have to throw away your lunga. The lunga was a large bell that Mabundu generals carried. It was the symbol of Najinga's authority, her token that showed she was a powerful warrior queen. 
It really was a deal with the devil, because Sanjay was asking Najinga to sacrifice her pride, her self-respect, the hashtag girl boss status that she had worked so hard to attain. I don't think he really expected her to accept his terms, but this is Najinga. She would do anything to win, and that meant anything. She accepted his terms without a second thought. She threw her lunga into the bush and went to Kasanje to become his queen. Her followers grabbed the lunga and kept it because after all, she might need that again someday. Was this going to be the end of Najinga? Oh no, oh no, 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 no. I don't think Kazanje knew just what he was getting himself into because Najinga wasn't gonna sit back and be his queen for the rest of her life. She had joined the Mbengala for a reason, to use them to fight the Portuguese and take back her kingdom. That meant that she would have to become an Mbengala war chief. There was a ritual for this. And now we will learn just how low and just how far Najinga was willing to go to win. In Bengala, initiation rites and rituals were predictably horrible. The first warrior queen of the Mbengala, Timboana Dumbo, had allegedly killed her own child, pounded his body in a mortar, and used the resulting uh, substance to smear across her body. It was a way of degendering herself, of transforming herself in the eyes of her band from woman to man and warrior. From that point on, Mbengala war chiefs were expected to coat themselves in human remains to gain authority and power. And Najinga performed the exact same ritual. She imitated Timbo Dumbo. She killed the baby of one of her female attendants who offered it up gladly because that's just how they rolled and coated herself in the holy oil the child's remains created. This is... Yeah, guys, this is pretty sick. I understand if you can take a minute after that because I kind of need to. Whew. The worst part about all of this was that it worked. Najinga was now both queen of Nadongo and an Mbengala war leader. Her sick, horrifying ritual had given her the power she needed to fight the Europeans. Within weeks, she was out from under Kasanje's shadow and assembling an Mbengala army. This included many of her Ndongo followers who flocked to join their queen who was coming back. She was back and she was on the way to being stronger than ever. Najinga's combination of Ndongo's traditions and the ruthless warrior culture of the Mbangala allowed her to re-emerge as a major threat to the Portuguese rule. This deal with the devil allowed her to bounce back from almost certain defeat, near disaster, to continue the struggle against her European nemesis, girl power. And all it cost was the life of a baby. By the end of 1631, Najinga's new Nadongo and Bengala fusion armies were striking back at the Portuguese and their allies. She still maintained the support of her people, and thousands flocked to join her new, ferocious forces. Soon, Najinga's reputation as a powerful Mbengala war chief was causing outright alarm in the Portuguese headquarters at Luanda. What did they have to do to defeat this woman? They thought she was done for. But now Najinga had an army, she had the street cred, and she just needed a power base. She needed a base camp. For this, she looked to the kingdom of Matamba. 
Matamba, ruled by Queen Mwango, was a small kingdom that bordered Nadongo, again, this is starting to rhyme a lot, isn't it, to the northeast. It was distant from the ocean, which meant that it was a safe haven for Mabundu refugees fleeing the Portuguese slave captures. Matamba was close to Nadongo. Without being within easy reach of the Portuguese, it had a tradition of female rule, and it was full of Nzinga's loyal followers. So our heroine slash villain looked at this kingdom and said, oh, it's perfect. Shame someone else is on the throne. Guess we'll have to fix that. It's kind of like house hunters, but kingdom hunters. Meet Najinga. She has a budget of 10,000 cannibalistic warriors. Will Matamba be the right kingdom for her? Will it have enough rooms for her male harem? A nice basement gem for her to practice the battle axe? In a living room big enough to hold the sacrificial altars? Anyway, in 1631, Najinga invaded Matamba with her new Nadongo slash Mbengala, Nadongo Lanala, something. I'm not going to try to do a portmanteau of that word. Army. Her army. She won several major battles with her brilliant tactics, following which, well, her soldiers ate some of the prisoners they took. Come on, guys. I know there's something else to eat. It's Africa. What, giraffe isn't good enough for you? Anyway, Najinga quickly captured the capital, and Queen Mwanga fell into her hands. According to strict interpretation of Mbengala law, Najinga was now supposed to eat Mwanga and gain her power, but Najinga, like any religious convert, was already picking and choosing which Mbengala laws she wanted to follow. Now that she'd rebuilt her military power, maybe it was time to get rid of all the baby-killing, people-eating stuff. It wasn't good PR, and even if Najinga had done it to gain power, she doesn't seem to have really liked doing it. So yeah, when Najinga began to lighten up on the Mbengala stuff, cannibalism and infanticide were the first things to go, as you know, they would be for any sane person. So Najinga let Queen Mwango live and consolidated her power over her new kingdom. She was now Queen of Ndongo and Queen of Matamba, a double queen. By fusing all three of these traditions, Ndongo, Matamba, and Mbengala, this is starting to sound like a song at this point, she could finally be strong enough to defeat the Portuguese and save her people, those of them that hadn't been enslaved or sacrificed or um eaten, but you know. So this combo, this double kingdom, would be Najinga's power base for the rest of her life. She was synthesizing three different societies, three different traditions, to create something brand new. It was a military state built on Ndongo's social and religious beliefs, Mbengala military rights, and Matamba's long history of female rulership. Ultimately, Najinga's greatest strength as a leader wasn't her brilliant military abilities or her determination or even her cold-blooded ruthlessness. It was her ability to fuse different traditions and ways of life into something that used their strengths and downplayed their weaknesses. See, Congo Nadongo and their neighbors had built a highly sophisticated military system with ranks and responsibilities and orders of battle involving large armies of light infantry fighting in open order. The traditional Central African ways of fighting demanded maximum opportunity for individual warriors to show their prowess with weapons like the bow, the battle axe, and the spear. Najinga had grown up with this style of warfare, and she was individually skilled with many different weapons. But the Portuguese had changed the rules of the game. They brought new technology, especially muskets, 
armor and steel swords. Their armies were always composed of thousands of local fighters, but with a small unit of Portuguese soldiers at the core. The big battles between Nzinga's armies and the Portuguese were, for the most part, Africans fighting Africans. But in many cases, the technologically advanced, highly skilled Portuguese, fighting on foot in heavy armor with pikes and swords, were the decisive element. Nzinga had found this out the hard way when the Portuguese had smashed her fortress at the Kandanga Islands. Many, many enemies of the Europeans failed to adapt when these new technologies and tactics appeared coming knocking on their shores, and we can't really blame them. It is a very rare leader that can transcend their traditions, break all the rules, transform their military culture, and create a new way of war. These people are extraordinarily rare. People like Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, or William T. Sherman. Nzinga was one of these people. Her ability to synthesize multiple traditions allowed her to synthesize military traditions to create a new unique style of warfare. She not only welded the Nadongo, Matamba, and Mbengala societies together, she combined European weapons and warfare with traditional African fighting styles. By the 1630s, her army had just as many muskets as their Portuguese enemies, but she used them in combination with archery and melee combat to form a versatile fighting force. She used musket-wielding elite soldiers in open order as the vanguard of her battle formation to disrupt and panic the Portuguese mercenaries. Nzinga used the terrain to her advantage, leading her army to strike fast with sudden ambushes and creating complex command structures that enabled her to form prearranged battle plans and wide-flanking maneuvers. She learned from her mistakes and always bounced back smarter and stronger. Nzinga had not only built a new state, a new power in Africa, but she created a new style of warfare. The only thing she was really lacking was a strong ally, someone who could counterbalance all the advantages of the Portuguese. But she was about to get one. Because the Thirty Years' War, a conflict that had started far away in Europe, was about to reach the shores of Africa. The arrival of a fleet, a Dutch fleet, would turn the entire situation upside down. It was time for the Portuguese to truly feel the wrath of Nzinga. Throughout the 1630s, Nzinga was a constant thorn in the side of the Portuguese. Even if she wasn't quite strong enough to defeat them outright, she was slowly winning the war of attrition. This was where he, she showed her skill and strategy, as well as in her battle tactics and guerrilla warfare. She began pushing the Portuguese back out of her original kingdom of Nadongo, but also expanded north and south cutting other African rulers off from the Portuguese colony. This was part of a broader plan. Nzinga understood that the main Portuguese motivation for war was their need for slaves, for human fuel. She was trying to monopolize the supply of that human fuel, which would both weaken Portugal and force them to make peace. 
By the late 1630s, Nzinga had established her dominance over the Central African slave trade. Now, she did take part in that trade herself. This might seem kind of weird to us, like Nzinga was saving her people from slave traders by becoming a slave trader. But remember, this is a woman who will do anything, anything to win. The Portuguese were going crazy trying to keep the Atlantic slave trade running when Nzinga's warfare was strangling their supply. If controlling the human fuel supply couldn't pry the Portuguese out of Angola, maybe bringing in outside help could. And outside help meant another European power. This power was the Dutch Republic, which was the Netherlands, which was currently fighting Portugal as part of the enormous European Donnybrook that was the Thirty Years' War. The Dutch were delighted to find an insanely brilliant African queen who had been giving the Portuguese headaches for two decades and decided to make Angola the target of their next attack. In 1641, a Dutch fleet carrying 2,000 soldiers suddenly appeared off the African coast. In a lightning strike, they captured Luanda and forced the main Portuguese army to fall back to its forts and settlements along the Kwanzaa River. The Dutch would occupy Luanda for the next seven years, and they were just pleased as punch to give Nzinga all the supplies and weapons she wanted in exchange for plenty of slaves. Soon, a Dutch ambassador arrived at Nzinga's court, and soldiers were to follow. After 20 years of Nzinga and her people fighting the Portuguese alone, they finally had an ally. The tables had turned. The Portuguese decided that now was the best time to ask Nzinga, hey, do you want to make peace? Can you imagine how she laughed at that? <laughs> no. Now you want peace? Now, when I have my own European soldiers and troops and money? Buddy, that ship has sailed. I've got you right where I want you. Using her new Dutch allies and her large, well-trained army, Nzinga was at the peak of her power. She launched massive, successful campaigns, reclaiming much of Nadongo and forcing the Portuguese to retreat to their fortresses. By 1644, Nzinga was winning the war, and everyone, the Africans, the Dutch, the Portuguese, everyone, realized that the next few years would be the climax of the conflict. When one of Nzinga's allies was attacked by a Portuguese army in the region of Ambaca, she led a large army personally to the scene of the fighting. Leading the charge herself, battle axe in hand, the 61-year-old queen smashed the Portuguese in a day-long battle. This triumph stunned the Portuguese and brought Nzinga to the brink of total victory. Nzinga's court in Kavanga, an advanced position in the Dimbos region that she seized in the early 1640s, was the nerve center of the whole war. When she wasn't leading armies and taking care of business, she relaxed with her harem, which she had carefully stocked with the most attractive young men in her kingdom. I mean, okay, unironic hashtag girl power, men have been doing that for eternity whenever they got the chance after all. She had taken on more masculine traits to assert her right to rule, such as forcing her harem to dress in women's clothing and call her king, because at least she had a sense of humor, right? Nzinga manipulated religious and cultural ceremonies, such as human sacrifice and witchcraft, to assert her right to rule. Outside observers, like the Dutch and the Portuguese, saw her random acts of cruelty and discipline as a form of savage tyranny. 
But Nzinga saw these as necessary cruelties, well within the Central African tradition, to cement her power base. For Nzinga, cruelty was never the point, it was a means to an end. There's more than a little shade of, um, Stalin to Nzinga's ruthless autocracy. But unlike Stalin, she didn't have to fake her popularity. In 1646, though, the empire struck back. Portuguese general Borges Madureira decided to launch a direct attack at Nzinga's base in Cavanga. In order to do this, he put together the largest army the Portuguese ever fielded in Angola. 400 Portuguese, 200 local colonial troops, 30,000 African soldiers, multiple regiments of Mbangala, field artillery, and thousands of slaves to carry supplies. Madureira launched this force directly at Kavanga. Najinga gathered her own forces to confront the threat, and the two armies faced off at Kavanga in March 1646. This was an epic, all-day battle, fierce and bloody, with Nzinga launching multiple attacks on the Portuguese flanks to try and surround them. Cannons boomed, muskets crackled across the hills and the forests, as large units of infantry, black and white on both sides, Portuguese and Dutch, Ndongo and Mbangala, fired and smashed and stabbed at each other in the grass and the sun. Nzinga directed the battle from a hill, giving orders, surrounded by her all-female bodyguard. The turning point came when Nzinga's troops achieved a breakthrough and pierced into the Portuguese camp, but then, fatally, stopped to loot the tents of money and precious goods. This enabled Madureira's own forces to counterattack. The steamroller of armored Portuguese infantry moved up the hill towards Najinga's camp, covered by the fire of the cannons. Najinga had no choice but to retreat, abandoning her headquarters and pulling back as much of her army as she could. She had lost the Battle of Cavanga. As it turned out, she lost much more than that. The Portuguese captured many of Najinga's personal possessions, including lots of silk and jewels and weapons and ammunition, but worst of all, they captured her paperwork and correspondence, which revealed that her sister Fungi, still in Portuguese captivity, had been passing information to Najinga about Portuguese movements. It had been kind of funny that she always knew what they were up to, and now they had their answer. For the last 15 years, Fungi had been spying for her sister, and now she would answer for it. The Portuguese drowned her in the Kwanzaa River as punishment for her deception. Nzinga was heartbroken and furious when she heard of her sister's death. Her other sister, Kambu, was still in Portuguese hands, but Nzinga, nevertheless, vowed revenge. The defeat at Kavanga had been costly, but she had gotten away with most of her army intact. Plus, the situation was now bad enough that the Dutch agreed to send a significant force to help her. It was time for a counterattack, the climactic battle of 25 years of war. Najinga and the Dutch assembled their armies in late 1647. They agreed to meet at a predetermined location, with the Dutch marching east from Luanda and Najinga marching west from her territory, unite and strike the Portuguese. But the Portuguese struck first. On October 25, 1647, the Battle of Combi began. 
Borges Marduriera's army of 25,000 men ambushed the Dutch before Najinga's forces had arrived. Although the Dutch put up a strong fight, only Najinga's arrival three days later turned the tide of the battle. She arrived in the nick of time with 4,000 of her best warriors to save the Dutch from disaster. They were still outnumbered and it was once again a bloody battle, but Najinga's unexpected early arrival overwhelmed the Portuguese. They left 3,000 dead on the field, including Borges Madureira, and their army disintegrated. It was Najinga's greatest victory. With one stroke, she wiped the main Portuguese army off the map, and now all they had left were the fortresses on the Kwanzaa River. Najinga immediately followed up her attack with an assault on the fortress at Masanganao, declaring that she would free her sister. Her forces scoured the country around the fortress, destroying Portuguese plantations, ruining their farms, but without artillery. Again, eight days of assaults failed to penetrate the fortress. She was 90% of the way to victory. She dominated the whole country, but those forts just stood in the way. They kept Najinga from liberating her nation. Though she continued to blockade Masanga now, which was only held by 300 Portuguese, her victory remained incomplete. She was so close. But then disaster struck again, and for once, Najinga wasn't on the receiving end. In August 1648, the tables turned again. A Portuguese fleet arrived off the coast of Africa and recaptured Luanda from the Dutch. This cut Najinga off from her most powerful ally and ended the brief period when she had been on top in Angola. This called for yet another change in strategy to end, if not win, the long, horrible war. The withdrawal of the Dutch, after seven years of alliance with Najinga, left her and the Portuguese just kind of staring at each other. And I mean, man, she had to have been exhausted. She'd been at war with these people her entire life. The Portuguese had almost destroyed her back in the 1620s, but she came back. She and the Dutch almost wiped them out in the 1640s, but they held on by their fingernails and they survived. It was clear to both sides that total victory was out of reach. Najinga was never going to root the Portuguese out, but the Portuguese were never going to destroy her. For most of the war, it had been Najinga trying to make peace, any peace that would result in the Portuguese recognizing her authority as queen. And for three decades, they had refused to do this. But after Najinga and the Dutch almost wiped out Angola, the Portuguese were in a weaker state than they had ever been. It seemed like peace might finally be on the horizon, not a victorious peace for either side, but at least a peace they could live with. Even as the war simmered down, Najinga began her final transformation, her final great synthesis of foreign cultures into a new combination of worlds. All her previous combinations had been intended to make war, but the last transformation Najinga of Nadongo would undergo would be for the purpose of peace. During a campaign against Congo in 1648, Najinga's armies captured a Congolese Christian priest named Calisto Zelotes dos Rios Magos. If you'll remember from earlier, Congo had converted to Catholicism of its own accord and blended that faith with their own traditions. After talking with Father Zelotes, Najinga suddenly realized that he was the priest who had first taught her about Christianity 
over 25 years beforehand in Lawanda. Najinga had never forgotten her personal conversion to Christianity, even if she had done it for diplomatic and strategic reasons way back in 1622. In the early 1650s, she decided to use religion for strategic purposes again. By taking in some Spanish missionaries, she had contact with another Portuguese enemy and a possible direct line to the Pope himself. Maybe applying religious pressure could convince the Portuguese to make a reasonable peace. Maybe it was time to turn back to the religion she had appropriated, then discarded, all those years ago. Just as she had taken on the horrific rites of the Mbangala in order to secure her kingdom, Najinga returned to Christianity in her final years. She had to reassure her horrified missionaries that she and her court did not <laughs> actually eat people, even if some of her Mbangala soldiers did. To be honest, some, people, some of her people were kind of confused that the Christians were so upset about cannibalism when they claimed to consume the flesh and blood of Christ as part of their own holy ceremony which I'll admit can be a bit confusing to explain. The Catholic priests made contact with the Pope, and Najinga promised to return to the Christian fold and made moves toward converting her kingdom as well. This had a positive response from the Catholic Church, and they put indirect pressure on the Portuguese to stop making war on an allegedly Catholic queen. This religious pressure, combined with the exhaustion of war, finally persuaded the Portuguese to get serious about peace. In 1651, formal negotiations began between Najinga's double kingdom and the single kingdom of Portugal. Najinga's goal was to secure recognition of her rule, as much territory as she could get away with, and the release of her sister, Kambu. The final peace treaty was signed in 1656, when Najinga was 73 years old, still as formidable as she'd ever been. The border between Portuguese Angola and Ndongo slash Matamba was recognized, with both sides swapping some territory here and there. Portuguese traders were allowed inside Najinga's kingdom, with the slave trade going only through her capital and under her close supervision. The two kingdoms traded ambassadors, and Najinga allowed Christian missionaries to enter her realm. Finally, Critically, Kambu was returned to her sister, and the two finally reunited after years apart. Najinga addressed her followers on the announcement of peace. Here is what she said. I want to tell you that the Portuguese king has won, and because I am already old, I no longer wish to go to war against his people. I will embrace the holy Catholic faith which before I had professed and in which I will die." But she wasn't giving herself enough credit. Najinga had won. After 30 years of continuous warfare from 1626 to 1656, she had preserved her realm and her people from destruction and enslavement. She'd been on the ropes more than once. After the ambush in 1629 and her defeat at Kavanga in 1646, but she always came back. She bounced back. She had sacrificed much along the way, her family, her culture, her traditions, her pride, and a couple of kids here and there, but she had won. The first European attempt to invade and conquer inland Africa had failed. 
It was thanks to the fierce resistance of the Mabundu people and the talented leadership of their fearsome, ruthless, wrathful warrior queen. In the last years of her life, Najinga focused on rebuilding her kingdom. The conflict had left villages destroyed, areas devastated and depopulated, and refugees all over the landscape. Najinga's efforts would be focused on reorganizing a kingdom that had been built for war, but now had to practice the arts of peace. Now that there weren't still wars to fight, Najinga bordered multiple hostile powers, including the Mbengala chief and her ex-husband, Kazanje. Their divorce had not been amicable, custody battles for kids are bad enough, imagine custody battles for regiments of cannibal warriors. But even in old age, Najinga was constantly prepared for battle. At one point, she impressed Father Giovanni Cavazzi when he spied her practicing with the traditional battle axe. The 80-year-old Najinga told Father Cavazzi, Excuse me, Father, for I am old, but when I was young, I yielded nothing in agility or ability to any in Bengala, and I was not afraid to face 25 unarmed men, except if they had muskets. When it came to other arms where anyone could demonstrate their courage, agility, or valor, I was ready. Keep in mind, guys, Chuck Norris is in his 80s, too. And if those two would ever fault, I'm sorry, but I wouldn't put my money on old Chuck. In fact, if weaponry, age, and health were all equal, there are very few people I'd expect to beat Najinga in a 1v1. Now that's an episode of Deadliest Warrior I'd be interested to see. But Najinga's greatest focus in her later years was the Christianization of her realm. This had certainly started out as a diplomatic slash political move to get European support against the Portuguese. But by the end, she genuinely seems to have converted, taken it to heart, personally as well as politically. That's a heck of an adjustment for a woman in her 70s and 80s to make, but Najinga had always shown that remarkable ability to transform, to synthesize different beliefs and ideas, to create something new. And she showed this one last time, when she merged Christianity with the other traditions of her double kingdom. Keep in mind that the Nagolas of Ndongo had always had religious authority over their people. They had the power to literally make it rain. So Najinga fused this religious authority with Christian authority to lead her kingdom towards a new faith, and they mostly followed her, even if there was a lot of resistance, both during her life and after her death. Now, Najinga wasn't always good at this whole Christian thing, but she was doing her best. When the Catholic missionaries told her that having a massive harem of attractive young men wasn't cool and she had to marry, she said, sure. She picked the prettiest boy out of the harem and had a public Christian ceremony. To decide whether to convert her kingdom to Christianity, she summoned all the spirits of her ancestors. She told them that the Christian fathers would teach them the law of Jesus, but that she needed their permission first. One by one, her priests were possessed by the spirits of her ancestors and gave their consent. Even her brother's spirit supposedly gave his approval if it meant the whites would let them live in peace. Now, you may or may not believe such things, but Najinga's people believed them, and Najinga herself may well have believed it. She built a stone church, held public baptisms, and brought in European missionaries to train native priests in the faith. 
she was delighted to receive a personal letter from Pope Alexander VII in 1661, thanking her for her work to convert her people. But she blended the new ways with the old. In one Catholic procession, she dressed in full royal regalia and performed a war dance that her ancestors had always performed before their own religious rituals. She would accept Christianity, sure, but on her own terms. Whatever changes Najinga underwent, whatever actions she took, beautiful or terrible, violent and peaceful, African and European, she always remained true to herself. Najinga's religious revolution was still not complete when she passed away in her sleep in 1663 at the age of 80. She had ruled Ndongo for 39 years. Her ceremony was beautiful and elaborate, a final statement of her greatest talent, a blending of European and African traditions, of Catholicism and traditional Mabundu religion. Ceremonies were held in Luanda as well, as even the Portuguese paid tribute to their bitterest and deadliest enemy. Najinga Nagola, the queen of Ndongo and Matamba, the Mbengala chief, one of the greatest generals of her age and one of history's most capable rulers, male or female, was on her way to the ancestors. Najinga was barely in the grave before legends were springing up around her. To much of the Western public, Najinga represented everything that was savage, brutal, and backwards about inner Africa, a promiscuous, powerful woman who assumed manly qualities and fought against civilization. That was bad enough, but pile on the eh, very fair accusations of child murder and you have a Jezebel figure for the ages. To Europeans, Najinga was a symbol of cruelty and lust for power, unnatural in her female ambition and masculine pride. When Europeans thought of Najinga well into the modern age, they saw her as, as a symbol for African barbarity and exoticness. To the Africans, of course, she was something else. To them, she was a symbol of freedom, resistance to European colonization, and the defense of their traditions. Najinga's story was carried across the Atlantic. Enslaved Africans told and retold the legends of the warrior queen in Brazil, the Caribbean, and the 13 colonies. Her example encouraged slave revolts, and folk songs recounted how she had defeated the whites when it seemed like no one else could. She's especially well remembered in Brazil, where so many of her people were shipped in chains, where her story was told and is told for generations. Najinga became a legend among the victims of the Atlantic slave trade. Many of these interpretations found their way into modern, anti-colonial contexts, with feminist and African authors in the modern day, showing up Najinga as a hero, an icon of African power and liberation. This interpretation, which is still very common today, sometimes comes close to an unironic girl power. But neither of these interpretations in the end was the real Najinga because people are more complicated than stories and songs, than legends both wonderful and terrible. And they're way more complicated than their statues. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? So, 
That's the life of Najinga of Nadongo, one of the most powerful woman leaders in history. The rival of Elizabeth I, or Catherine the Great, in sheer personality, determination, and brilliance. And I think there's a case that she was one of the two or three most skilled female military commanders in history as well. One of the things I can't help but notice is her resilience. She just kept coming back from disasters that would have wiped out and did wipe out many other people in similar situations. No matter how many times the Portuguese thought she was beaten, give her a year and guess who's back, there just wasn't any keeping her down. And Najinga isn't just important for the history of Central Africa. She's important for world history. The very first attempt by any European power to conquer a large section of inland Africa was stopped in its tracks. The Portuguese wouldn't succeed in colonizing inland Angola until 300 years after Najinga's death in the 19th century. This is why she's important to so many people. She stopped European colonization, drove it back when the exact opposite of that was happening all over the world. And modern Angola is, more than anything, the vision of Najinga rather than the vision of the Portuguese. It is a blending of Catholic Christianity and Portuguese culture, with native religions and native cultures. Angola has also had more than its fair share of women leaders in its history, largely stemming from Najinga's legacy. It has a unique and vibrant tradition that comes directly from Najinga's greatest strength, her ability to take multiple traditions and blend them to make something new. Her story is not just a great underdog tale. It's the story of modern Africa as a whole, its triumphs and its tragedies. But I started today's episode by talking about statues. Najinga's statue in Lawanda today is a typical representation of a national hero. Brave, defiant, unconquerable. But we now know that Najinga was uh, no Disney princess. She murdered her nephew, for both power and revenge. She sold slaves to the Europeans to sustain her war effort. She sacrificed women in religious rituals to gain spiritual power. She led armies of cannibals, and of course, she sacrificed a baby and covered herself in its remains to gain the Mbengala authority she needed to continue the war. And these are horrible acts. If you were disgusted by any of that, that is the reaction you should have. And to be honest, if you aren't disgusted, I'm kind of worried about you. But remember why she did these things. It wasn't because she was some demonic lunatic. Oh, not just because. She did it to continue her war, to secure her power and defend her kingdom. So Najinga did terrible, horrible things for what she saw and what kind of was a good cause. So we might say, well, no, of course she doesn't deserve a statue. Why would we honor someone like her? Well, guys, I will remind you that in America, we have statues for lots of people who did horrible stuff, even killed children. Maybe not directly. Maybe they took actions that resulted in the deaths of children. They didn't kill them with their own hands, but those kids were no less dead. Does Hiroshima ring any bells? So can people be heroes and villains? Is Najinga both the liberator of her people and the monster of European fairy tales? Yeah, kinda. Disney princess and Game of Thrones villain all within the same person. 
When we look at any historical figure, we can't focus on the good and ignore the bad, or obsess over the bad and ignore the good. You can't separate the one from the other. That is just what it means to be human, all the complexities and internal tensions that go with it. But statues aren't really for the dead, are they? They're for the living. People raise statues because they want to convey a certain message, a historical narrative, a statement about who they are. People of Angola didn't raise a statue of Nzinga because she killed kids, but because she represented their independence and resistance to foreign rule. It doesn't tell the whole story of who she was, warts and all, but that was never the point. Who we create statues of and why tells us more about ourselves than it does about the person we're raising. So if we ask if a certain statue should be raised or come down, maybe we should focus less on the historical significance of that person. I mean, come on, there's no statues of Hitler. Everybody knows who he was. We don't need statues to remember history. We should ask why the statue was raised in the first place. What does it symbolize? What message do those people want to communicate when they raised it? If you think Nzinga deserves a statue despite her bad deeds, and that's valid, what else are you willing to overlook? If you think Nzinga doesn't deserve a statue because of her bad deeds, and that's valid, then maybe don't dig too deep into America's heroes either, because you might not like what you find. Heck, maybe no one really deserves a statue. So when we think about Nzinga's statue in Luanda... Consider who we honor, who we choose to uphold, why we choose to do that. And I think you'll find that most of those great men or women were bad, bad people at their core, as most great people are. Because even golden statues, in the end, have feet of clay. Thank you so, so much for listening to me today. If there's one piece of advice you take from this episode, if in the future you ever buy baby lotion that's endorsed by an Angolan warrior queen, maybe check the ingredients first. Make sure that in baby lotion means what you hope it means. Thank you also for your continued support of this podcast. If you like what you hear, tell your friends. If you don't, tell your enemies. If you're sick and disgusted by everything I've said today, tell me about it. Go to my website, leave a comment at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to support in other ways, find a donate button there as well. I'm on Facebook and on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod. Email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect. You got advice? I'd love to hear it. And finally, thanks for sticking with me so far. Check back, same place, same time, next week on Unknown Soldiers.